book banning. Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Housing and Homelessness Take Center Stage During Denver's First Mayoral Debate by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading Wolf Wednesdays is a Place for Denver's Hip-Hop and R&B Artists to Shine by Isaac Vargas. And People feared Denver's I-25 and Broadway plans would be dangerous for pedestrians and bicyclists. Now it's changing them, by Nathaniel Minor. From Westward, I'll be reading, Can Denver Count Votes Faster This Election Cycle? by Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. And Conservation in the West, Poll 2023, Worries About Water, Desire to Protect Public Lands, by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Housing and Homelessness Take Center Stage During Denver's First Mayoral Debate by Robert Davis. As the race to become Denver's next mayor heats up, housing and homelessness have become two topics that candidates cannot avoid talking about. Denver's next mayor will have to address the lack of affordable housing for many workers in the city, as well as rising rates of homelessness. They will also have to reverse the trend of declining government employment at a time when some candidates want to increase enforcement of the city's urban camping ban. The election will be held on April 4th, and Denverites will begin receiving ballots on March 13th. 16 of the 17 candidates vying to become Denver's next mayor showed up to the first public debate of the campaign season at Regis University on February 9th. While their views varied widely on topics like the environment and economic policy, they all seemed to agree that housing and homelessness are the two most important issues that the city's next leader must address. Candidates like outgoing at-large city councilwoman Debbie Ortega and state representative Leslie Harrod, a Democrat who represents parts of downtown Denver, including City Park and the Botanic Gardens, said that they would create more affordable housing by passing ordinances that allow for a more diverse housing inventory. Ortega said one option would be to build manufactured housing on city-owned land. Another option would be to address the backlog of permits within community planning and development that is delaying affordable projects from being built, she added. I think this is a way for us to look at the way we do things differently and help bring more affordable housing to the market, Ortega said. The median price of a home in Denver grew about 37% from $474,000 when the pandemic began in March of 2020 to more than $650,000 at its peak in April of 2022, according to data from Redfin. While the real estate market has cooled considerably since then, the rental market has remained hot. Data from Point to Point Homes shows that Denver's average rent for a two-bedroom apartment has increased by 25% since March 2020. To address these issues, candidates like Ian Thomas Tafoya and Terrence Roberts said Denver needs to provide different financial pathways for people to become homeowners. 
One solution Tafoya offered was to invest in more financial literacy programs. Roberts said the city could also invest in land banking to cut down on the acquisition costs that go into building new homes. The candidates also supported a range of options to reduce the number of people experiencing homelessness. Some of their ideas included establishing rent control policies, increasing eviction protections for renters, and building more permanently affordable housing units where residents would never pay more than 20% of their income on rent. However, the candidates were sharply divided over whether to continue enforcing the city's camping ban, which has been a point of contention between City Hall and the city's homeless advocacy community since the law was passed in 2012. There have been multiple lawsuits filed to try and stop the city from enforcing the camping ban, and none have been successful. Kelly Bro, who served as president and CEO of the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce for over a decade, said she would stop endlessly sweeping people from neighborhood to neighborhood and would instead create more sanctioned campsites to help people transition into housing. We need to get ahead of this issue, Brow said. However, other candidates like Chris Hansen, a Democrat in the Colorado Senate who represents wealthy Denver neighborhoods like Congress Park, Hilltop, and Washington Park, said he would continue enforcing the city's camping ban if elected. This is a moment to reevaluate and use evidence-based programming and budgeting like I've done at the state level, and we absolutely have to enforce Denver's camping ban to make progress, Hansen said. These next two articles are from Denverite. Wolf Wednesdays is a place for Denver's hip-hop and R&B artists to shine, by Isaac Vargas. Who want the mic? Yasmin Holtz asked the crowd gathered at the 778 Denver on Mariposa Street on Wednesday night for a weekly open mic. As snow fell outside, bouncy, locally produced hip-hop instrumentals played inside the Lincoln Park nightclub, and local talent warmed up to perform. A sunset orange stage light lit the room as Holtz, artistically known as Jazzy Wolf, kicked off the night's show. Artists have gathered here since last November for Wolf Wednesdays at the members-only bar and nightclub for the open mic Holtz started for local hip-hop and R&B talent. All talent is welcome to the stage. We don't want to turn anybody down, Holtz said. But it is tailored to hip-hop and R&B because we don't have enough outlets in Denver. One of the biggest draws to this particular open mic are the incentives. $100 cash prizes, studio time, and press kits to the performers with the most crowd votes. Holtz, 24, first got the idea for Wolf Wednesdays during her time living in California with her father. As an R&B artist herself, she had to figure out a way to get plugged into a community she knew nothing about at the time. I started going to open mics in San Diego, and the vibes in there were like nothing I had ever experienced. Everyone who was there were artists. That's when I knew we needed something like that in Denver, she said. Holtz said that, in her experience, many of the events in Denver don't cater to hip-hop and R&B artists. I'd ask for an aux cord to play the instrumentals I'd perform over, and many of these places looked at me funny. They were surprised I wasn't playing an instrument, she said. Wolf Wednesdays bounced around bars and venues in Denver before eventually landing at the 778 last fall. Holtz credits DJ Tease as one of the earliest silent partners of her show. 
He came to my show one day and reached out the next day about wanting to sponsor cash prizes. When we started offering better opportunities for artists, that's when we blew up, Holt said. Now, partners like Bright Future Media and Jump the Line are helping sponsor Wolf Wednesdays by offering studio time and funding cash prizes. More recently, MCA Denver agreed to partner with Holtz and offer a paid performance on its rooftop for the winner of the upcoming Alpha Showcase on April 12th. That's how it's supposed to be, Holtz said. Despite the snowy conditions, 30 performers took the stage this week. From rappers to singers, comedians and poets, local talent was buzzing until about 1 a.m. Yasmin Amani, 20, is a Park Hill resident and an alum of Denver School of the Arts. She performed for the first time at a Wolf Wednesday event after hearing about it through a friend on Instagram. Everyone is saying R&B is dead, she said as she began her performance, so I had to prove them wrong. The self-described alternative soul artist then began to fill the room with a voice that caused attendees to look around the room with faces that non-verbally asked, Are you hearing this too? Beyond being a place to get exposure, the open mic night is a chance for artists and performers to network. Elijah Beauford, also known as Young Activist, 24, performed two original songs. and between them, he plugged his new studio. Just to let y'all know, I run a studio in Montbello on 47th and Peoria. Please connect with me if y'all looking for some studio time, he said. I'm always working, and this is one way to get our name out there, he said when asked why he attends Wolf Wednesdays. For Holtz, it's a win-win situation for partners and artists alike to see their music community flourish in this capacity. I love Denver, and I'm just blessed to be able to do this full-time, Holtz said. People feared Denver's I-25 and Broadway plans would be dangerous for pedestrians and bicyclists. Now it's changing them, by Nathaniel Miner. The Denver Department of Transportation and Infrastructure announced Tuesday that it intends to add additional pedestrian and bicycle safety improvements to a controversial project that would rebuild the interchange of Interstate 25 and Broadway. Neighborhood activists, multimodal transportation advocates, and members of the department's own advisory board and even a city council member have criticized the project in recent months, saying it will make an already dangerous area even more perilous for people trying to access the nearby RTD station. The city has gradually been rebuilding streets in the area for the better part of a decade after receiving federal approval in 2008. The next phase up for construction was set to widen several streets and build a new on-ramp for southbound I-25 traffic in the name of congestion relief. A future phase called for the demolition of six homes to accommodate a new northbound I-25 on-ramp from Lincoln Street. Now some of those plans could be changing. A press release from the department said it was exploring additional improvements, including engineering treatments to protect pedestrians by slowing right-hand turns from Broadway onto Ohio Avenue, a new east-west pedestrian crossing at Broadway on the south side of Ohio Avenue, installation of 10 to 12-foot multi-use paths on both sides of Kentucky Avenue, Broadway, Ohio Avenue, and the east side of Bannock Street within the current project limits, 
the removal of one northbound lane of South Lincoln Street from Ohio Avenue to the traffic signal to the north, approximately 600 feet, to shorten the pedestrian crossing distance and provide a wider buffer for pedestrians on the east side of Lincoln, increasing the visibility of pedestrians with a raised crosswalk where cars access I-25 southbound from Broadway. These are some substantial changes, DOTI Deputy Manager of Internal and External Affairs, Nicholas Williams, told the department's advisory board Tuesday. I know there was concern about the pace and even lack of communication around it, and I certainly understand that. But I just want to make sure folks know we were not twiddling our thumbs. These are some pretty substantial improvements. One member of the advisory board, Julie Reiskin, co-executive director of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition, noted the less than certain language in the press release and asked Williams whether the changes would happen or not. It's much more than we are thinking about it, and you can blame a lawyer for having written that, Williams replied. We have strong confidence that these will be executed. Two neighborhood critics of the project said they still had questions about the specific changes, but were thankful the city is now listening to their feedback. The DOTI project team is actively listening, collaborating, and working with us to improve the project, Brittany Spinner and Amy Kenreich wrote in an email. Jay Cohen, who co-chairs the department's advisory board, said the changes were what he and other board members were hoping to see. The department appears to have taken this seriously and incorporated real safety enhancements that better reflect the city's safety and climate change objectives, he wrote in a statement to Denverite. The department is also now considering abandoning the future, as of yet unfunded, phase of the project that would demolish nearby homes, the press release said. That will take coordination with state and federal transportation officials because the project has received federal funding and approval for the existing design. But in an interview with CPR News in December of 2022, Stephanie Pollock, then acting administrator of the Federal Highway Administration, said federal approvals for local projects do not last forever. If there is a case for reconsideration, we'll at least think about it, Pollock said. The city anticipates the next phase of construction will begin later this year. The following articles are from Westward. Can Denver count votes faster this election cycle? By Connor McCormick Cavanaugh. When Denver's first results for the November 8th election were released at 7 p.m. that night, 109,247 ballots had been counted. That figure represented 23.7% of the 461,022 total ballots that had been ma mailed out. But while it turned out that 287,842 Denver voters actually submitted their ballots in that election, tabulating them to within about 1,000 votes of that final count, with some straggler ballots and overseas and military voters still hanging out, took a week and that just might be an unavoidable ramification of Colorado's mail-in voting for midterm and presidential elections. You get the benefit of conveniently voting by mail, but unfortunately, on the back end, as long as Denver is presenting the ballots in two languages and you have long ballots, the cost of that convenient voting option is slower election results, says Jocelyn Bucaro, 
former director of the Denver Elections Division. That delayed processing comes with an added negative effect at a time when election denialism is peaking. It does introduce a risk that voters will lose faith or confidence in the election results if they are very slow to report, adds Bucaro, who now serves as director of the Mobile Voting Project at Tusk Philanthropies. One big reason for the time it took to count the ballots, 119,845 Denverites submitted their ballots on Election Day. According to Lucille Winnegeem, a spokesperson for the Denver Clerk and Recorder's Office, the elections team had already cleared most of the ballots that had been received by November 6, before Election Day. But then the Denver Elections Division received a rush of ballots on November 7th and 8th, leading to a clog. The ballot was three double-sided pages on 8 by 16 inch paper, which was three times as long as any other county, and which takes longer for even newer scanners to process ahead of the bipartisan teams, says Winnegheim. When the Denver Elections Division receives a ballot, the signatures on the envelope are compared by a machine with a matching signature on file. If the signatures match, then the ballot can move along. If there's an issue with the match, then an elections judge attempts to confirm the signature match. If this judge can't confirm the match, then the envelope is handed to a pair of election judges, a Democrat and a Republican, who verify the signature themselves. If they determine that the signatures don't match, then the ballot is determined invalid. If there's an evolution in ways to authenticate voters that don't require these processes, then maybe that would speed up some of the ballot processing, Bucaro says. Denver taxpayers might need to put some more money or resources into equipment to get ballots tabulated faster. According to the Denver Elections Division, a refinement of existing signature files will help the signature verification machine confirm signatures more frequently. This machine's confirmation rate was approximately 20% for the November election. Denver Elections staff expects a confirmation rate between 30 and 40% for the municipal election. But that leaves 60 to 70% of the ballots that still need human signature confirmation. The sequence of events makes processing mail-in ballots more time-consuming than processing ballots in an entirely in-person setting. The tabulation in those situations, the actual ballot scanning, all of those ballots are processed at the polling location rather than in the election office, Bucaro says, noting that with all in-person voting, the division office just has to tabulate the numbers it receives from the polling locations, and the results can be ready by the end of election night. Still, the Denver Clerk and Recorder's Office doesn't predict having another delayed count for the April 4th municipal election. This election, we expect less turnout than in the midterm, and the ballot will be one piece of 8.5 by 11 inch paper, double-sided, so we do not anticipate the same processing demands, Winnegheim says. Ballot length aside, the best ways to control delays are to ramp up on staffing, review the processes to save any bit of time, and then focus on outreach, Bacaro suggests. One process improvement that the Denver Elections Division has made for the upcoming vote is additional training for ballot openers, many of whom are older individuals. 
In fact, there are so many election judges who use oxygen that the elections division has a special room for them with an oxygen concentrator where they can plug in their tubes. A major part of this training will focus on the most ergonomically efficient way to open envelopes. Small changes like that can save time, according to staff. But engagement of voters in Denver is also important, ensuring that people submit their ballots early. Outreach early and often to voters to encourage them to get their ballots in, Bucaro says, noting that the high number of mayoral candidates on the ballot, 17 this round, may overwhelm voters. The clerk and recorder's office did pay outreach through digital and print ads in English and Spanish across the city in the run-up to the November election that reached over 200,000 people at least once, according to Winnegheim. The office also went and conducted almost 90 constituent events to meet voters in their communities and let them know about the election and collaborated with the Broncos and Ball Arena to have early voting and election information at games and on the radio, among other efforts, she says. I don't know if there's ever enough, but we definitely are committed to getting Return My Ballot higher on people's to-do lists. Conservation in the West, Poll, 2023. Worries about water, desire to protect public lands, by Katie Cheshire. In its 13th year, the annual Conservation in the West poll showed that, despite changes in the world over the years, people in the western United States stick to their beliefs when it comes to the outdoors. We've seen three presidents. We've seen new governors in virtually every single state. We've seen different changes in the economy. Lori Weigel, the principal at New Bridge Strategy, who helped conduct the survey, said at a press conference held February 15th. But what we've seen that's remained incredibly consistent over this past 13 years is that Westerners really do tend to prioritize conservation of land and water and wildlife, and in many respects, their ability to enjoy the outdoors. Weigel noted that Coloradans in particular love the outdoors, In iterations of the survey since the pandemic, the pollsters added questions about increased recreation during the pandemic, and people in Colorado were almost offended, saying they have always used public lands. It's key to this state's identity. In Colorado, specifically, 66% of respondents consider themselves conservationists. The Conservation in the West Pole is housed under the State of the Rockies project at Colorado College, which works to enhance public understanding of the Rocky Mountain West and advance solutions to socio-environmental challenges in the region. Colorado has been part of this survey since its inception in 2011, when it was included along with New Mexico, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming. Over the years, the survey has expanded to include Arizona, Idaho, and Nevada as well. The nonpartisan group spends the beginning of the year interviewing voters for those states about a variety of conservation issues. It pays attention to black, Latino, Native American, and Gen Z voters, as well as the general population. Black and indigenous voters in the West are not only passionate about the outdoors, but they care about protecting our environment and about issues like climate change, pollution, and the impact of oil and gas, said Mighty Arce, president and CEO of Hispanic Access Foundation. 
One may ask, why do communities care so much? Because when we talk about conservation, we're talking about much more than protecting the land, waters, and climate that surrounds us. Conservation is also having to do with our health, the economy, work, and social justice. Communities of color are often disproportionately impacted by environmental hazards as a result of historic environmental racism, she continued. Nature is supposed to be a great equalizer, Arce said. In reality, however, American society distributes nature's benefits and the effects of its destruction and decline unequally by race, income, and age. The poll showed that communities of color want a stronger voice when it comes to decisions about the climate. Still, their priorities align with those of most voters reached by the poll on the importance of public land, with 68% of respondents agreeing that conserving public land is more important than using it for drilling or mining. One question that we've asked consistently since 2019 is for voters to place themselves in the position of their member of Congress and say, where should more emphasis be placed in upcoming decisions regarding national public lands throughout the West and then in their state, Weigel said. We continue to see that voters in the West tell us that we need to basically place more emphasis on the conservation value and outdoor recreation value of national public lands rather than on energy production on those lands. Water was one of the biggest topics in 2023, with the survey finding urgency around protecting clean drinking water, with half the respondents saying the water shortage is a serious crisis. In Colorado, 92% of people said drought is a serious problem. The level of intensity of concern around water is really off the charts on a number of metrics, said Dave Metz, principal and president of Fairbank, Maslin, Mullen, Metz & Associates, who also helped conduct the survey. It is higher than it has been over the course of the State of the Rockies project. It also cuts across geographic areas in the West. Weigel pointed out that in the time period when the survey was being conducted, it was snowy or rainy in every state, unlike in previous years, yet people still said they were worried about water. We used to say, oh, people aren't concerned about water just because it was raining two days before we conducted interviews, she said. That's not the case anymore. The Colorado River was a specific topic of concern in 2023 with METS describing it as one of the major drivers of the sentiment around water in the Intermountain West. This year's survey included specific questions about the Colorado River. In Colorado itself, 77% of people said there was a need for urgent action regarding the Colorado River, and 83% of people said it is critical for the state's economy. Despite worrying deeply about water, Survey respondents said they don't know what sector uses the most water. In Colorado, 35% of people thought industry and business use the most water, 34% thought farmers and ranchers use the most water, and 29% thought people in their homes use the most. According to the 2015 Colorado Water Plan, over 80% of the water in the state goes to agriculture. For most of the members of the public, their perceptions of water use are kind of based on what they see around them, Metz said. In most of these states, the weight of the public lives in cities or suburban areas that may be surrounded by a lot of agricultural land, but it's not where they spend most of their time. 
As a result, they tend to assume that, well, households or small businesses are big. They're probably consuming large amounts. Given that, Metz said it wasn't surprising that respondents didn't know where most of the water in their states is used, but that it highlights an area that could use some public education. When it came to solutions that would address inadequate water supply, over 80% of respondents agreed that investing in better water infrastructure, requiring local governments to determine whether there is enough water available before approving new residential development projects, and increasing the use of recycled water in homes and businesses were good moves. In Colorado, 81% of people also supported providing financial incentives to homeowners and businesses to replace lawns and grassy areas with water-saving landscaping. In a world where differences can often feel bigger than similarities, Metz says it doesn't surprise him that conservation values in the West are so consistent and often cut across party lines. Through recessions, spikes in energy prices, and changes in political administrations, people respond to what they see. All of those changes in the context don't do a lot to alter what they fundamentally value about living in these states, which is so tied to the outdoors, Metz added. It's a major reason why people move to these states, and why those who grew up in this part of the country stay there. That sort of direct day-to-day experience shapes their perceptions much more than what they're reading in the newspaper. Things are looking up in Colorado. Is it aliens? UFOs? Balloon Boy? By Teague Bolin. What is it about Colorado that inspires tales of mysterious objects flying overhead? Is it a simple matter of elevation? We're nearer to the sky so we see more things in it? Is it the lack of oxygen causing some visitors to hallucinate? And what about the relatively few cases in which there's photographic evidence of, well, something? We're not being invaded by aliens, tweeted CD6 Representative Jason Crow on February 13th in response to all the recent activities in the sky. Everyone can calm down and come out of your bunkers. That is exactly what someone would say right before the aliens invade, Congressman. And there's something in the air. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper are getting briefed on the actions overhead, and NORAD is tracking stuff like it's Christmas all over again, and Santa has just entered Colorado airspace. Even memories of Balloon Boy have been resurrected in the wake of the Chinese spy balloon that started this latest string of flying object obsessions. Clearly, Colorado wants to believe. But what's inspiring all that faith in the night sky, and what might be floating through it? Colorful Colorado may not be racking up numbers like Area 51 in Roswell, but we have our stories, many of them captured in a 1969 report from the University of Colorado. Here are ten of the most memorable. Pikes Peak, 1947. Just over a month before the incident at Roswell, New Mexico started a spike in UFO sightings across the nation, there was a sighting right here in Manitou Springs on May 19, 1947. Seven employees of the Pikes Peak Railway were breaking for lunch when they spotted a shining silver object coming at them from the northeast. It would stop in midair, gyrate a bit, then fly in a deliberate straight line, all the time reflecting light in the way metal might. They tried to look at it through binoculars, but somehow those seemed to bring the image no closer. 
After 20 minutes of this aerial show, the object sped off to the west. The United States Air Force investigated and reported that the phenomenon was possible birds, whatever that's supposed to mean. La Vida, 1955. In late November 1955, State Senator Sam T. Taylor saw what he described as a dirigible-shaped object at the base of the Spanish Peaks in Huerfano County, the very part of the state he represented. Taylor, who was Democratic floor leader at the time, described the object as luminous green-blue and jelly-like and changed flight paths in midair. This is only one of the many stories revealed in the declassification of Project Blue Book, which tracked UFO data from 1952 until 1969. San Luis Valley, 1967. A three-year-old Appaloosa named Lady disappeared from the Harry King Ranch one day. She was found a couple days later, dead and skinned around the head and neck, with several vital organs seemingly removed with surgical precision. The horse became a Colorado legend, nicknamed Snippy, courtesy of the gallows humor of journalists referencing the condition of her remains, which were completely drained of blood. Her naked skull was bleached as though it had been baking in the high desert for years. Flying saucer sought in death of horse was the headline of an October 6, 1967 article in the Rocky Mountain News. Genesee, 1973. Woody Allen was apparently persuaded that Colorado was the perfect spot to see the future and filmed sci-fi comedy Sleeper here. One of the sets included the sculptured house built by architect Charles Deaton in 1963. It was soon nicknamed Spaceship House and then Sleeper House. On Genesee Mountain, I found a high point of land where I could stand and feel the great reaches of the earth. Deaton is quoted as saying in the 2009 book, The Iconic House. I wanted the shape of it to sing an unencumbered song. What's perhaps even more surprising is that this purple prose and the unique home design still visible off I-70 that it inspired came before marijuana was legalized in 2012. Salida, 1995. Tim Edwards of Salida captured what many considered to be one of the best UFO footage to come out of our state. When a tube-shaped object appeared in the sky near his Chaffee County home, the local restaurateur grabbed his camcorder and began to record. I don't look outside no more, he told the Gazette Telegraph in 1996. I don't get no sleep. Loveland, 2000 to 2014. For more than a decade, Colorado resident Stan Romanek was a leading expert in UFO lore, claiming to have been abducted first in 2000 and then several more times in subsequent years. He's also the only person responsible for the widely circulated and highly suspect Boo video of an alien supposedly peeking through one of his windows. The scariest part of Romanek's tale didn't turn out to be his abduction stories. He was convicted for possession of child pornography in 2017 and served two years in prison. He's currently a registered sex offender under intensive supervised probation to th through 2030, which means even the aliens don't want to have anything to do with the guy anymore. Breckenridge, 2014. Three faint ball-shaped orbs appeared over Breckenridge on October 3, 2014. 
employees of both the Breckenridge Police Department and the Summit County Sheriff's Office were among the witnesses. We have no idea what that was, no clue, local law enforcement told the Summit Daily. Still, according to the paper of record, neither department had plans to launch an investigation into, into what might have been behind the unidentified visitors to the mountain town skyline, unless investigating means they walked outside on Friday to look at the sky. La Junta, 2019. In a YouTube video that hit big, a security cam in someone's driveway captured an image in the middle of the night. People described it as everything from Dobby from Harry Potter, like that's more believable than alien visitation, to just a skinny kid in his underwear, doing a weird chicken dance in the wee hours of the morning. Northeast Colorado, 2019 to 2020. At the start of the COVID pandemic, there was a lot to focus on in the news. So you'd be forgiven if you've totally forgotten the invasion of drone-like lights over northeast Colorado and southwest Nebraska around the holidays, right before everything closed down. They always appeared after sunset, 30-some six-foot-wide objects in formation 200 to 300 feet above the ground. And then we all forgot about them because we were sheltering in place. Coincidence? Yes, obviously. This isn't InfoWars. The UFO Watchtower, ongoing. If Colorado has a Roswell analog, it's the town of Hooper, population 77, which has lost about a quarter of its residents in the last 15 years. Not to abduction, so far as we know, but to simple attrition. Still, it boasts the UFO Watchtower, a couple of miles north on Highway 17, where owner and operator Judy Messaline invites stargazers, sky watchers, campers, and tourists of all kinds, alien or human, to visit. The observation platform has a 360-degree view of the surrounding area, with a gift shop, vortex garden, and a small memorial to none other than Snippy the Horse, whose bones are here on display. As Messaline's UFO Watchtower website proclaims, you never know who you will run into at the UFO Watchtower for a little conversation. How the Blasting Room Went from DIY Mothership to Sought-After Recording Studio by Justin Criado. Bill Stevenson didn't bank on punk rock paying his bills for this long. As founding drummer of Descendants and All, Stevenson played in punk bands for most of his life, including stints with Black Flag and the Lemonheads. But it wasn't until 1994 when he and his all-bandmates relocated to Fort Collins and opened the legendary Blasting Room re recording studio that his punk passion became an unexpected full-time profession. While it started out as a DIY home base for the band, the studio has been booked solidly for 28 years now, says Stevenson. We got a sizable recording contract, so we thought, well, rather than continue to pay for studio time when we record, we should just build our own studio. Then we'll have a practice room, studio, and place to do demos all in one spot, now that we have a little bit of money to make that happen, he recalls. They located the big, huge, empty building at 1760 Laporte Avenue and thought, yeah, this'll work, Stevenson says. At first, we are all kind of living there, he continues, just crashing on the floor, practicing there, 
and we had our mail order in there too, and a t-shirt printing press. The building was kind of our whole world. We built it for us, the band, but no sooner than we got the walls up, we didn't even have paint on the walls yet, bands started calling, saying they wanted to record at the studio. We were like, oh wow, cool bands want to record here. We hadn't even recorded there yet. The first project was the all album Pummel from 1995. After that, the studio kind of took on a life of its own. Stevenson hasn't spent a penny on advertising or marketing since then. He points to the famous Field of Dreams line, if you build it, they will come, to describe the phenomenon. He's the studio's current co-owner, continuing with the venture when his all bandmates moved on. Seattle musician Jason Livermore, who held down the kit for such bands as Wretch Like Me and Drag the River, was one of the people attracted to what the guys in all were doing. He even moved to the front range shortly after the blasting room opened to see for himself what it was, what it was all about. I was selling beer for a living at Miller Brands and didn't want to wear a tie every day of my life, Livermore says, adding that he knew Stevenson from touring and their bands shared a manager. I just jumped in and these guys taught me a lot. I worked my butt off and it just kept going. Livermore officially became a co-owner of the Blasting Room in 2015. The studio now employs six producers and engineers and has worked with thousands of bands, including Rise Against, Alkaline Trio, and As I Lay Dying. Local filmmaker Aaron Pendergast is even making a documentary about his hometown studio, simply titled The Blasting Room, which is due out sometime later this year. But Stevenson, who is humble and shies away from pointing to a favorite project he's worked on over the years, isn't relying on this impressive resume, especially given the fickle nature of the music industry. He's also quick to credit others for the studio's success. Personally, I wake up most mornings and my very, very first thought is, okay, is today the day that the bottom falls out beneath this half-assed career I've put together out of punk rock? Or is that day actually going to be tomorrow, he admits. It might just be in my nature, but I don't have a sense of security from any of this stuff. You can turn on the radio station that used to play Descendants or Rise Against or whatever, and you're hard-pressed to listen for 30 minutes and ever even hear a guitar, he continues. It's all synthesizers and drum machines. That stuff is largely outside the area of our expertise. We're making art. The whimsical tides of the art community are unpredictable, so I don't put much stock and stability in this or my band, but I do appreciate the fact that it's thus far been pretty stable. The Blasting Room has attracted many other artists from various backgrounds and musical leanings. Longtime ska band Mustard Plug has recorded four EPs with Stevenson at the studio, and the group was back in Fort Collins to work on new material last month for the first time since completing 2007's In Black and White. Lead singer David Kirschgesner loves the magic of the studio, even if he can't quite put his finger on why Mustard Plug just seems to sound better after recording there. Every time we don't go there, we're slightly disappointed, he says, and when we do go there, we're happy with it. It's definitely getting harder for us, just because we're getting older, to take a couple of weeks out of our lives to go out there and record. We decided it's worth making that investment of time and money and energy. We're really excited to head out there. 
There's not necessarily anything unusual that goes into the blasting room process, as there's not a right way to do it, according to Livermore. There's many, many different ways you can get to the same result, he explains, adding that some bands prefer to come in and play a full album from top to bottom without much overdubbing. When it comes to the music recorded at the blasting room, Stevenson applies a Charles Bukowski quote, As the spirit wanes, the form appears, to explain that the appeal doesn't just stem from the legendary studio it was recorded in or the work of the people behind the board. The reason I quote that is that I just want to give a shout out to the song. The most important tool that we have is the person brings in a good song, he says. Then you can record that song in a lot of different ways and end up with a great situation. But if you don't have good songs, you end up adorning mediocrity. Somewhere between those two eyes is really where the recording process lives, trying to make something cool and make it spectacular. Calling himself the grandpa and stupidest of the group, Stevenson semi-jokes that there's one big secret behind the studio's success. The trick is only hire geniuses. But seriously, adding talented producers and engineers over the years, including through internships, has helped the studio grow and cement its reputation. I think that we've had a little bit of good luck and the benefit of being able to launch this on the heels of my tenure in pedigree with Black Flag and Descendants and all. That's what we launched it on, but at the end of the day, the cream rises to the top. After Jason moved out, it became really apparent the level of aptitude. Jason really just became far more expert than the trajectory that Stephen Edgerton of all and I had been on, Stevenson says. It very quickly developed its own wings. Currently, the way the studio run now, very little of that has to do with my musical history, he continues. It functions more like a cooperative, quasi-communal in the sense that we work as partners and musicians in arms. It didn't start as a business, per se. It's like a lifestyle. It's just what we like to do, and we happen to get paid for it, Livermore adds. Somewhere in the 2003 to 2005 range, we were sort of booked up every day for like years with no time off. That was an all-consuming event like, holy shit, we're working a lot. We were giving everything that we could possibly give for a long period of time. It's still going kind of like that, but for a period, it was like all we were doing. The Blasting Room is becoming a family business at this point. Stevenson's son, Miles, is an intern there. And like father, like son, Miles is a punk rocker himself and is the lead guitarist of Fort Collins band Hospital Socks. That's afforded me a chance to bond with him in a way I hadn't previously had an opportunity to. It's been great. That's been special. As a father, that's given me a joy that I haven't known for many other things, Stevenson says, adding it's a bit of a trip to see Miles work alongside Livermore, since the families babysat for each other over the years. What keeps the Blasting Room Collective going is that same punk rock ethos Stevenson has subscribed to his whole life. We're just showing up there every day and working and trying to do our best, he says. New comic, Dead Mall, takes you to the shopping center of your nightmares, by Teague Bolin. Malls in America seem to be trapped in a sort of half-life. There are stumps still around, including a handful in Metro Denver, 
Even while a general consensus is that their time has largely passed, we miss you, Cinderella City, Villa Italia, and most of Westminster Mall. But malls still hold fast to the hearts of many in terms of both commercialism and nostalgia. That sense of being trapped in a juggernaut of commerce and culture is central to the new dark horse comic Dead Mall, written by horror writer Adam Cesare, clown in a cornfield, and illustrated by Denver artist David Stoll. The first two are already on the stands, with a growing fan base. Issue 3 hits stores on Wednesday, February 15th. That same day, Stoll will make an afternoon appearance at Time Warp Comics in Boulder, where he'll sign comics, offer quick sketches, and meet fans. We all grew up with malls, says Stoll. It was always the place to hang out, where you went because you had nothing else to do as a kid. That's the inherent irony of mall culture for you. It became central to several generations of youth who went to shopping malls because they had very little money to spend. Stoll says his visual take on the spaces in Dead Mall required him to visit several shopping centers in the Denver area. He visited several, including Colorado Mills, taking notes and pictures, drawing quick sketches. As a kid, I remember malls feeling like freedom, says Stoll. Visiting those malls now, in my 30s, they feel like giant meat grinders, like huge cattle troughs designed, designed to force people to spend as much money as possible before they're let out. I recognize now how they're predatory, and it's weird to realize just how hungry malls can seem. The mall at the center of Dead Mall, the fictional Penn Mills Galleria, is a ravenous entity in the literal sense, taking the history of horror in mall culture one step further than in the past. Mall horror arguably began with Dawn of the Dead in 1978, but it's slain a lot of teens since then, from Chopping Mall to the Fear Street series to Zombieland 2 to Stranger Things 3 and beyond. In Dead Mall, the mall itself operates much like the Eagles Hotel California, Patrons who enter through the Adelaide vestibule may never leave. In most of those movies, Stoll says, the mall doesn't really take center stage. It's not the focus, it's just the setting. We wanted the mall to be a character, not in the metaphoric sense. We wanted it to be active and alive. Stoll says that his primary contribution to the project wasn't so much story, but design. Not only did I go out and measure the spaces in the malls, literally pacing out distance, but I ended up creating a 3D model of Penn Mills, he says. Not only did that give me a better sense of the visuals in the book, but it also let me get these cool perspective shots that I wouldn't have otherwise considered. Stoll was born and raised in Arizona and got his master's degree in sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. He ended up in Denver because his graduate school cohort had connections here. The comic world is very much based on connections, and several of them have found themselves in Colorado. They share a studio space called Jam House at a former machine shop in Englewood. The creatives sharing the studio with Stoll read like a who's who of Denver-based comic artists, Jorge Corona, the me you love in the dark, colorist Sarah Stern, by night. Morgan Beam, Crashing, Jeremy Lawson, Teen Titans Go, and Rye Hickman, SFXX.
Stoll says that the artists, their work, and the bullpen they share keeps him motivated. It doesn't allow inertia to take hold, as it can sometimes working from home, he says. We're super excited to be able to bring Dave to Time Warp for a signing anytime, says store owner Wayne Winsett, but especially for a book like Dead Mall. It's a slick-looking comic with a great story, and we love supporting our local artists. We hope to see a lot of fans come out to support them, too. Sweet! Denver's only chocolate-centric restaurant and bar reopens in new location by Molly Martin. It's been a passion of mine since I was a little kid to own a restaurant, Phil Simonson told Westward in January of 2022. At the time, though, he was preparing to close his first eatery, Chocolate Lab, after a series of issues beyond his control forced him to close his spot at 2504 East Colfax Avenue. He hoped to find a new space for his chocolate-centric concept quickly, but the process took a bit longer than he expected. Now, nearly a year after it closed, Chocolate Lab has made its comeback in a former cheese shop at 5573 East 3rd Avenue in the Hilltop neighborhood. Stressful and relief at the same time, Simonson says of his feelings about the reopening on February 11th. I get to go back to doing the crazy things that I like to do, and I have an amazing staff that's ready and super excited to welcome everybody back in. But it's also the ownership of a restaurant. It's a lot of stress. But it feels like it's all come full circle, and I'm ready to jump off the cliff and run again. It's going to be a fun run. Like the Chocolate Lab's original location, the Hilltop space had also been a cheese shop. Since getting the keys on November 1st, Simonson has made some updates to the space, bringing new lights and tables into the bright 32-seat dining room, adding tile work and building a bar. The kitchen is three times the size of the one in the old spot, and we actually have a real stove this time instead of just induction burners, Simonson notes. We can do a lot more. We can have a lot more fun and just be a little more creative. The location has other benefits as well, including plenty of parking and a new neighborhood. We're not on Colfax anymore, so we don't have to worry about all the crazy that Colfax brings with it, Simonson adds. Hopefully, no more break-ins or anything like that. This neighborhood is much more close-knit. People are excited about it and talking about it and ready to come in. Simonson has been ready for a while, but faced more delays even after finding the space. We dealt with the city process of licensing and licensing and licensing, he says, referring to an issue that has impacted many restaurant owners in Denver. This city is the worst for helping small businesses. For example, he notes that he got the approval for a liquor license only 24 hours after a December 29th hearing, but it took the city around 45 days to actually issue the license when it's supposed to be done in 10, he says. And that's with my licensing person calling all the managers and pushing people. He finally received the license at 5 p.m. on February 9th, the day before Chocolate Lab's friends and family preview. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.